<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host, back from vacation. Did you miss me? Well, I have got a great interview this week and next. John Scheinfeld is my guest. John is a documentary filmmaker. He has been nominated for Emmys and Grammys and Golden Globes and probably the Heisman Trophy. He's done some amazing documentaries on a lot of people like uh, uh, John Lennon, Harry Nielsen, the Bee Gees, Gary Marshall, on and on and on. And it's a fascinating world we will learn a lot about by meeting John Scheinfeld this week and next here on Hollywood and Levine. Well, I've known John for a long time, but I was really introduced to his world one time a few years ago, and you were putting together a MASH documentary, and you were also putting together a Watergate documentary at the same time, and I was invited to go to your house to do the interview segment for MASH, and at one point I walked into the kitchen to get some water, and there's Carl Bernstein pouring himself a cup of coffee in John's kitchen. <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> so th these are the people that you just deal with on a daily basis. <laughs> I have a great job, Ken. I get, to, I get to go interesting places and talk to interesting people about interesting things. And that just happened to be one day, yes. I, I don't have celebrities in my kitchen very often, but uh, that was uh, one of those uh, great days. <laughs> So I, I'm always interested in origin stories because no two people got into the entertainment industry the same way. What was your path? Because I knew you originally as a studio executive. How did you find yourself moving into documentary films? Well, I, I'm a Midwest boy. I grew up uh, born in Chicago, raised in Milwaukee. But from the time I was about 11, when my parents took me to see Lawrence of Arabia uh, on the big screen, I was just enthralled and said, I have to be in this business doing something. And uh, I'd gone to film school at Northwestern uh, in Chicago. And, um, and then I was going to make my assault on Hollywood. And um, I didn't know a soul, but I put together a very flamboyant resume because my feeling then as now is 
All a resume has to do is get noticed. I didn't care if they read it. I didn't care if they remembered what was in it. As long as it said, meet this person, and mine did. And uh, I came out on a Sunday for a couple of interviews. And by Friday, I'd been hired by Paramount as a baby development executive and was working in their comedy area. And about 18 months later, I got hired away by MTM, and that's where we met, um, uh, first doing um, uh, drama development and then comedy and drama development. But the more I spent in on that side of the desk, if you will, um, the, the less happy I was. It, um, my first boss actually said, you know, as an executive, you spend about 85% of your time keeping your job and about 15 percent i thought wow you know that's got to be and he was right and, and i just hated that um so uh, after about uh, uh five years as a development executive um the great glenn padnick at embassy uh president of embassy television uh brought me over on a producer deal and that got me started um uh, produced, I did a pilot for CBS and for Nickelodeon. And uh, then I, I didn't see much future for a non-writing producer. So um, I took a year off and I was writing and writing and writing. And then I started to write episodes for some drama shows that I would be embarrassed to tell you that I wrote for. Um, and then um, Bob Greenblatt um, discovered me as a pilot writer. And I uh, was writing drama pilots with a sense of whimsy. Uh, for about five years, not one of which got made, Ken, but they paid me money to do it. And uh, But then I didn't see much future beyond that. Um, you know what that's like. You, you're on the list for a little while, and if nothing gets made, you get off the list very quickly. Yeah, that's true. I want to back up for just one second. Yeah. I want to go back to that resume. <laughs> so what did you put on that resume that got noticed? Did you say, you know, well, I created the Dick Van Dyke show and uh, <laughs> I was a, an all-star guard uh, for the Northwestern Wildcats? What did you say in this resume? Actually, it's, it's the way the resume looked. I did it as if it was a reprint of a People magazine article about me. So I stole the typeface and put a cover, uh, sort of a big photograph of me. And it was like direct from the Midwest, John Scheinfeld, blah, 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 blah. You opened it up and in the breezy, gossipy style of People magazine was my whole story. And if they didn't read it, which I wasn't sure that they would, I peppered it with photographs with one line uh, descriptions that kind of gave a sense of my history and things I had done in film school and I'd done some commercials, uh, directed some commercials and things. And they'd never seen anything like this before. And it's, it stood out at that time um, uh, when, when most of the resumes were the, the form we all learned in college, you know, mm -hmm. your, your name and address up on top. It's very it. smart. So it kind of said, this is a creative guy and, uh, and who does things a little differently and I think um, I, I had no no experience to speak of. So I think they looked at this and said, well, maybe this is a smart guy we can train. And uh, and I think that's that, that's how that happened. But uh, it actually got rid up, uh, written up in a book a few years later about how to get a job in Hollywood. So, <laughs> it's really a great story. OK, so, so now you're on the C list, 
which is very unfortunate because there is no C list. (laughs) What was your next step? And I just sort of saw there wasn't much future for, for me in that area. And around the same time, I got to know Groucho Marx's grandson, Andy. And he said, you know, no one's ever made a great documentary about the Marx brothers. You should make one. And I said, well, I don't know anything about making documentaries. I come out of the scripted world. And he said, yeah, but, you know, you're a storyteller. And so anyway, long story short, he gave me the rights. And we put together a documentary that became The Unknown Marx Brothers. And it started as a one hour for the Disney Channel uh, when it was a, um, a, a pay service. Um, and it would be kids programming till about eight o'clock. And then from eight to midnight, they would run stuff for the adults that were actually paying for the channel. And uh, they did a lot of pop culture stuff. And so they bought a one hour documentary and they liked what we did so much. They made it into a two hour. And uh, so we did the unknown Marx Brothers. We got to interview some of their daughters. And the the idea of the film was not the usual films uh, that everybody knows, but bits and pieces where they had done uh, short films, radio, television, um, uh, guest star spots, uh, things um, that showed them off, but they weren't the famous movies. So anyway, uh, I had such a good time doing that and loved the form of the documentary uh, that uh, uh, I, I dropped off the sea list even and uh, started making documentaries. I guess the hard part, especially when you're starting making documentaries, is getting funding. Always. Uh, it's, uh, they don't tell you that when you're in film school. Uh, they teach you how to use a camera and how to light, but they don't tell you you're going to have to get down on your knees and beg for money. Um, and I call it the knee pad tour where you, you get down and, and beg. And so at, at first it was mostly doing it for television. So I did a number of docs for, um, PBS, uh, did a big one on the Bee Gees for A&E and Bette Midler for A&E. Um, but then I had, a, a, a I was working with a guy at the time that, you know, David Leaf. And we had an idea together to do a documentary about the political John Lennon. Uh, it hadn't been done before. Lots of people had done Beatles docs or, or, or John's music doc. But uh, we were very intrigued to know that he'd had an FBI file and that the Nixon administration had gone to great lengths to try to neutralize him. And the more we looked into this story, the more we thought, wow, this is really a very compelling story. And so... Our agent uh, at the time had had set up uh, a bunch of meetings, uh, and our very first one was at Lionsgate, and they didn't let us out of the room. They liked it so much, and they committed to pay for it. We got a really nice budget, and that kind of started me on doing feature documentaries. After that one, David and I sort of went our separate ways, and um, I've been doing feature docs for the most part ever since, and uh, the the money is always an issue. Uh, Sometimes you get funded by a studio, sometimes by a network or now a streamer. Um, And and sometimes um, I've had luck of late uh, getting my documentaries funded by um, independent financiers who high net worth individuals who have a passion for the subject that I want to do. And um, and so you sort of have to treat each documentary as its own 
entity and figure out who has a reason to make this. Right. And, and you have credibility now, too, because you really do have a track record. More with John Scheinfeld in a moment, but right now, today's episode is brought to you by Honey, which is the free browser extension that scours the internet for promo codes, and it applies the best ones it finds to your cart. It is supported by over 30,000 stores online, and they range from pretty much everything you need, uh, tech and gaming products, to popular fashions, even food delivery, and it works so simply because you're shopping online, you get to the checkout, and the Honey button just drops down. You just click on Apply Coupons, you wait a couple of seconds, it does its thing, it finds the coupons, and then you see your price goes down and down and down and down. And it is free. Honey has saved its 17 million members. Are you ready? $2 billion. So if you don't already have Honey, you could straight up be missing out on free savings. Like I said, it's literally free and it installs in just a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and, even more important, supporting this humble podcast. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash Levine. Once again, that is joinhoney.com dot com slash Levine. I saved $16 last week on a humidifier. It's free, people. It's free. So again, that's joinhoney.com slash Levine. You will thank me. So when you go into a documentary, you, you talked about doing a Marx Brothers documentary exploring an avenue that hadn't been explored. Do you think that for every documentary, do you say to yourself, okay, people know the Bee Gees. What don't they know? What slant can I give this subject that is sort of unique and takes it in a direction that people don't expect? Uh, that's right on the money, Ken. Absolutely. Um, a lot of times when you're doing a big uh, pop culture subject, somebody has done something. Not always, but, 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 but often. And so, yes, you want to find that one way in, whether it's having um, whatever the concept is, i.e. The, the political John Lennon. Uh, and there's a story there, which I, I can tell you. Um, or you just find the one take. I mean, I did a film a couple years ago on the legendary jazz musician John Coltrane. And in that case, there hadn't been anything, but I wasn't interested in analyzing the music. I wanted to, to really peel back the layers of the onion and get to know the artist, get to know the man. So we kind of did the, uh, the spiritual John Coltrane, not, oh, he was great playing triple thirds on an alto saxophone, you know. Um, so, yes, it's always sort of finding just the right vision, the right take on something. Um, I'd, I'd tell you the a story that I love. Um, uh, I went to meet um, Yoko Ono to try to get her interested in, in, in doing the documentary. She was not in your kitchen that day. I... She was not in my kitchen. No. Didn't know her. Um, <laughs> and so we made a pitch uh, to the lawyer who's a great guy and um, he pitched her and she really liked it. But um, we didn't know this at the time, but she had agreed to participate in a documentary a couple of years before 
which did not turn out well and actually has never seen the light of day because um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, so here we come, you know, uh, here's this. Uh, and she liked the idea. So she gave us her blessing, but not her participation at first. But I knew that she had this great archive of material. Um, between 1969 and, and 72, uh, they, uh, they were sort of a reality show before there was reality television. There was usually <laughs> a film crew uh, following John and Yoko around. And I knew all of this film existed. And I really wanted to get access to it. Um, so we put together a rough cut that was obscenely long. It was about two and a half hours. It had lots of holes in it, like film clip here, a photo to come. Um, but we wanted her to see what we were doing because she's all about, will you do what you say you will? Because I think she's had a, a, a lot of different experiences where people did not do what they promised. So uh, we go to the uh, Dakota where she lives in New York and uh, it's all white, very white, very Japanese. You take off your shoes and you go into the kitchen and there's a big 52 inch TV in the, in the kitchen and her lawyer is sitting there and uh, who's become a great friend. And um, we're just talking and she comes in with a little pad. And I think, Ken, you've been in meetings like this, I'm sure screenings like this, but she comes in with a pad. She doesn't say hello. She doesn't say good morning. She doesn't say, would you like some tea? She says, let's go. So we put in a DVD of the rough cut and it's two and a half hours. And I swear to you, from start to finish, she's looking up at the screen and then looks down at the pad and makes a little note. Back up to the screen, comes down, makes a little note. And my heart is dropping uh, onto the floor because I'm convinced she hates it. And we're in deep trouble here. Um, all the way through. So finally it's over and nobody says a word. And she looks at me and like a little girl, puts her two hands together and claps. Hmm. And, and she says, she says privately what she later said publicly when we screened the film at the Toronto Film Festival. She said, you know, of all the films made about John, this is the one he would have loved. Aww. And, and then she had like one note. I don't know what she was doing for two and a half hours. <laughs> um, but we, we, we got one note and she said, the gunshots aren't loud enough. And I must have given her a strange look. Like, you know, what do you mean? The, 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 you know, we, didn't, we hadn't mixed the sound. It was just we slugged in some gunshots when, when John was killed. And, and so I must have given her this look. And she, she looked at me. She said, John, I hear those gunshots every day of my life. I said, I get it. Totally get it. Um, and from then on, um, it was uh, every day, every other day, either she would call me or uh, her assistant would call me and say, oh, you got to see this. Yoko wants you to see this or come under the and they gave me access to the archive. I got to go. There was in the lower west side of New York. And we found a lot of really cool stuff that made our film so special. And anyway, that was, one, again, one of those great moments that you have in this job where um, if you do what you say you will, good things will come back to you. Have you ever started a project with a, a certain take and then you're halfway through and all of a sudden it goes in a different direction? Not dramatically so. Um, 
I know there are some documentary filmmakers that will shoot a lot of footage uh, and then figure out what the story is uh, once they get in the editing room. Um, and I find that a little irresponsible. So I, I always like to have the vision for what it is and a general roadmap, a treatment of, you know, two to six, seven pages. So you just sort of generally know where you're going. Um, now, you will always encounter things along the way. Someone will tell you a story. Someone will give you an insight that maybe they've not shared with anyone else. So it is entirely new. And you will follow that. And that'll give you a, a little extra something. Uh, but the general framework is is the same. Uh, while we're on the subject of Lenin, there's a, a good example of that where um, the more people we talk to for that film, and there's quite an impressive array of people that we were able to interview, uh, it became very clear um, that the uh, love affair between John and Yoko was so deep and powerful that it had an impact not only on their personal life, but on their professional life. The more we heard this, the more I felt, well, this has got to be part of the film. So we didn't intend to play the romance as much as we did. Uh, but that didn't really change the framework of the film. It sort of changed some of the texture and the flavor. Um, so, no, I think the answer is uh, usually I know where I'm going and we go there, although there may be some surprises along the way. So uh, when you're doing a, a documentary, it seems like one thing that the filmmaker has to have is patience because you you call these lawyers, you email these lawyers, you contact managers, you are constantly waiting to hear back from various people. Um, is it helpful to have one or two or three projects going at the same time? Because if you're just doing one, I mean, it could take two years of your life, right? That's a great question. Um, yes. <clears throat> a documentary from start to finish may be anywhere from uh, nine months to 18 months, uh, depending on uh, circumstances. I'm finishing one now that we're actually going to finish uh, by the end of the month. Um, we've been on a little over two years, but we were delayed by COVID because we couldn't travel to shoot interviews um, or people didn't want to sit for interviews. So that delayed us a bit until uh, that situation changed. Uh, so yes, it does help to have a couple of things juggling. I don't have them exactly start to finish uh, all at the same time. I'll stagger them. So I'm sort of working on one. And then if we slow down a little bit, I, I start another and start another. So at the moment I've got, finishing one and I've got two others that we're working on. Um, so yes, that always helps a bit because you are doing a lot of waiting, but it's also different, uh, Ken, than, than the scripted world that you come from um, because <clears throat> you can be looking for that perfect photograph, that perfect film clip right up until like weeks before you're finished, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the script can keep changing because of the form or uh, I, I drove my editor crazy about two weeks ago. We were, uh, we were prepping for the final sound mix and um, I'm looking at this thing and it's just like the ending is bothering me and I, I want to change this. So I want to, we ended up taking a minute and a half out of it. And so he had to recalibrate everything to get it 
everything's synced up for the final sound mix, but the film is better as a result of it. But that's the cool thing about a documentary is you can be making changes right up to the last minute. Um, but uh, patience in all things, yes. Um, whether it's, it's if you're not finding that perfect image to help make the point you want to make, if it's waiting for that great person you want to do an interview and you're not hearing from them, or you hear from people and they're saying no and like, all right, who am I going to get to replace those people? So there's all those kinds of things, but I don't know that that's any different from where you come from in the scripted world. Patience with everything, you know, with a scene, with a dialogue, with a joke, uh, patience with that network executive who just didn't understand what you and David were writing, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, and uh, so I think it's uh, that's a great virtue in show business. So I guess uh, one of the uh, qualities that you need as a filmmaker is to be a nudge, right? Because <laughs> you probably are calling these managers, hey, remember me? I called you three weeks ago. You were supposed to talk to John Mulaney. What, what happened here? Uh, <laughs> Ab- absolutely. You have to do that all the time. Or sometimes you get lucky. Um, I did a doc two years ago, a little over two years ago, that aired in primetime on ABC about Gary Marshall. And I would, we had 25 big stars from Julia Roberts to Anne Hathaway to Ju- Julie Andrews to Chris Pine to, you you know, we had so many of his big stars in it. And Henry Winkler. And I think it was the easiest show to book because uh, Gary was so beloved by people. Right. That you made one call and it was, yeah, sure. You know, that'd be great. Um, so that was easy. I'll tell you a funny story, though. I did a, a doc a couple of years ago about Sergio Mendez, uh, the great... Uh, Brazil 66, sure. Brazil 66, great musician and a great, great human being. Um, I always like to have somebody in my documentaries that uh, the audience will look at and say, what the heck are they doing in this documentary? So I decided I was going to go after one of the biggest movie stars in the world at the time. Um, so I call, I call up uh, the publicist for Harrison Ford and say, here's who I am. Here's what we're doing. We'd like him to, to do this interview about Sergio Mendez. And, and with great attitude, the publicist says, well, why would he want to do that? You know, he doesn't do much. And why would he want to do that? I said, just ask him. And about three days later, very sheepishly, she calls back and says, well, we're all stunned, but he wants to do it. <laughs> and here's why. Um, before he was Harrison Ford, he made his living as a carpenter. And his first big, big job, not just little fix the bal- the banister or, or build me a, a stairway. Um, his first big, big job was building a home studio for Sergio. And they got along great. And I think he loved the idea of doing an interview where he didn't have to talk about Star Wars or Indiana Jones, you know. And uh, we had the best time and he's wonderful in the film. And so you get lucky sometimes. But yes, other times you have to be a nudge and keep calling. Oh, yes. Right. Well, we'll talk to him about it. Yeah, it it is a small world, isn't it? Because you you look at uh, Brazil 66 and uh, Lonnie Hall who was the lead singer, is married to Herb Alpert, who is a distant cousin. I'll get into that story. And and Karen Phillips, I don't know. And Karen (laughs) Phillips, who was the other singer, 
she, number one, was on MASH early on. And number two, she's married to a comedy writer friend of mine, Pat Prof. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, here's the thing with her about my mother always contended that we were cousins with Herb Alpert. I don't know how. She doesn't know how. But (laughs) uh, so I was going to ask you, because I know you did a documentary on Herb Alpert. Did my name come up? (laughs) Uh, No, nor did the name of your mother. I'm sorry to say. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Um, Someday I'm probably going to meet him. And I'm going to say, I understand we're distant cousins. And the first thing he's going to say is, no, you're not getting any money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, but here's he's he is a wonderful, wonderful man who does wonderful things in this world with that money. Um, But here's one of the serendipitous kind of things that happened. I was doing the Sergio doc and. Uh, Herb discovered Sergio and signed him to A&M and produced the first couple of albums. And so, and because Lonnie was the lead singer, we did interviews with Herb and Lonnie and they had, we all had such a good time. And then Herb at the end of the interview, I heard how shy he was. And, but at the end of the interview, he's like wanting to know where do I come from and how long have I been doing this and what do I like about it? And how do I go about doing a doc and blah, 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 blah. What I didn't know is that Sergio had been telling him what a great experience he was having working with me. Um, and uh, and then about three months later, I get a, my phone rings. John, yes, it's Herb Alpert. Oh, Herb, hi. I want you to come out to the house. I, I, I have an idea. So all of a sudden, I think he'd been thinking for some time about doing a doc and he was ready and wanted me to uh, be considered for that and could I come up with a take and ended up with uh, the approach uh, an approach that he uh, uh, and Lonnie loved. And we spent about 18 months doing that one, which was just, just great. Um, but no, sad to say your name did not come up in any of our uh, due diligence. <laughs> you know, uh, the Gary Marshall one. I mean, I, I did plays at the Falcon theater and then my name didn't come up in any of these. Huh? We, so we saw your play, uh, uh the, uh, it was then the Falcon Theater. It's now the Gary Marshall Theater. But I know it's just, uh, you know, our paths keep crossing. Actually, you know what I remember? And I thought this was just a great story about writing partners. You and David and I went to have lunch one day while we were all at MTM together. And the bill came and you were short a dollar for your portion of it. And you looked over at David and you said, give me a dollar. And he opened up his wallet and he gave you a dollar. And then we all sort of had our thing. And I said, this is like happen all the time. And I think it was you or David, whoever it was, who said, this dollar has gone back and forth between the two of us for like 12 years now. Exactly. And And you can add like another 30 to it. One of (laughs) us owes the other a dollar. (laughs) But But I thought, what we don't know. What great trust and understanding between writing partners. That was that was very <laughs> impressive. Okay, just to set the record straight, David owes me the dollar. 
And that will do it for part one of my two-part interview with John Scheinfeld. Thanks so much, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. I have an email address, should you wish to get in touch, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I am on Twitter. Who isn't? Oh, yeah, that guy. Well, at Ken Levine on Twitter, also on Instagram, where I showcase some of my cartoons, Hollywood and Levine. Again, tune in next week for part two of my interview with John Scheinfeld right here on Hollywood and Levine.